At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. You're listening to the, the best, best of, of the best, best of, of the best, best, best of yes. MIP. Yeah, with honors. <laughs> This is Naked Pine. M.I.P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest holds a PhD in religion from Emory University and M. Dear from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, BS in Computing Science and Mathematics from Mississippi College. He was selected by Emory University's Graduate Division of Religion as Distinguished Alumnus of the Year in 2013 and Mississippi College's Mathematics Department as Alumnus of the Year in 2016. I've been asking about the math and religion piece. That's interesting. I'm curious about that. <laughs> he is uh, the CEO and founder of P-R-R-I, and a leading scholar and uh, commentator uh, on religion, culture, and politics. Of course, P-R-R-I is the Public Religion Research Institute, and he's got a new book out. Check out this title, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. We're happy to have with us Robert P. Jones. Robert, how are you, buddy? Dr. Robert P. Jones, how are you, man? I'm great, great. Thanks for having me. Honored to be here. First of all, reading that bio, math and religion and theology. Reconcile. I mean, I, I noticed something there. I'm just not picking it up right away. Yeah, what, what's no, up no. with that? I was a math and computer science undergrad, double major, and, uh, you know, decided kind of my junior year that's not what I wanted to do. And as we said in my Southern Baptist up, upbringing, felt a calling uh, to go to Good. seminary. So I did that. It was actually intended to go into the ministry, and then along the way kind of caught the academic bug and felt like that was a better fit for me. So ended up doing a PhD in religion at Emory University after that uh, in the kind of area of sociology and religion. So I was actually able to pull together, you know, math and sociology. And a lot of what I do in my day job is look at public opinion surveys at PRRI. So actually, there's percent signs on my screen all day long, most days, uh, but the content is, is about religion. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very important. And the book, White Too Long, if I'm not mistaken, do I have this right? You all just received an award, right? Did the book just uh, not see the book? Yes, um, I was really honored. The book just received an American Book Award uh, given by the Before Columbus Foundation. Wow, congratulations, really congratulations. White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. I was uh, took uh, as an at-large student 
took a class at McCormick. I'm I'm hoping to get into a uh, PhD program, man. Um, if somebody just let me in, I don't know. I, I kind of <laughs> not really. I tell you, you Rob, you laugh at this. I messed up years ago. I went to Catholic University, so I'm in a meeting. I'm talking. I said, "What you want to do, Mark? What do you want to write your dissertation about?" I said, "I want to write about how a Roman Catholicism's roots, uh, even down to the rituals, are uh, rooted in ancient African Egyptian culture and the mystery systems. Mm-hmm. You know, even even down to the dress. When you look at the hieroglyphs and what the Pope wears." Mm-hmm. So I said that, Robert, and I was a lot younger than I didn't know there were just things you didn't say. You get in the program and then you do that. You don't announce before you get. <laughs> so <laughs> uh-huh. that's that you're going to relate Roman Catholicism to ancient African antiquity. And they said, OK, we'll, we'll call you back. And so, you know what happened. They didn't call me back. But uh, <laughs> but maybe somebody let me in to do something sometime. And, and, and I think but I think it's important. But I bring it up to say I went to McCormick in this and it took a summer class on reparations. And in one of the essays I wrote about, at least in my view, and I've been saying this for a while, that the when we talk about the mystery of our faith, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, you could apply that to African-Americans, especially specifically to Christianity, because Christianity originally was used to as an argument and the book, good book itself used to justify enslavement mm-hmm. and segregation and other things. But look how we then turned it around and found use for it in our liberation, uh, in our liberation struggle. So I, I think what you've done is, is very important. But, but let's start there because you, you kind of start out there in terms of, of the role. Uh, you, you're, you, you, you call Christianity the actual conductor. And I like that imagery because we talk about the Underground Railroad. But you call Christianity the actual conductor of white supremacy. Mm. Yeah, you know, um, so I should say locate myself here. So, um, you know, I'm someone who grew up as a Southern Baptist, uh, white in in the white church in in Mississippi. So grew up very much inside that world. And, you know, yeah, it's been a long journey, I think, of discovery, self-discovery and unearthing, you know, what has been kind of a suppressed history. You know, for example, I mean, to tell you how pointed this is, you know, my own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, I, I grew up thinking that word Southern only referred to geography, right, and not to the Confederacy and to, ensla- and to enslavement of, of African Americans in this country. So it was until I was in my early 20s at seminary that I finally got the real story, you know, that that word Southern uh, referred to a Southern way of life, which included mm-hmm. enslaving people on the basis of the color of their skin. That's what that refers to. It's not a map. It's, it's a worldview. That was still pretty much at the heart, even though submerged of that version of Christianity that I was, you know, handed and and schooled in growing up. So, you know, and and this has been true. It's also, we can go back a little further. Um, It's actually the version of Christianity that lands on these shores from Europe. I mean, you were talking about kind of the roots of Christianity that, you know, all the way back into uh, the 15th century, you know, we have the doctrine of discovery, which is even before the Protestant Catholic split. And so both sides of the Christian world inherit this, the Protestant and the, uh, and basically that doctrine was the justification for the domination for genocide and for claiming lands as Europeans were uh, fanning out in the so-called New World. It was literally passed in 1493, right after 1492, right? Columbus's voyages in 1492. And it was the church and uh, the nations giving a moral and divine blessing uh, Mm -hmm. on the confiscation of lands and the domination of peoples in the name of European kings and uh, uh, really a white Christian God. Yeah, yeah. It really... 
creates cognitive dissonance for those who those of us who believe Christianity and the Bible and scripture is about something the opposite of that, isn't it? It, it kind of makes you then, did, did you go through that? As oh, you yeah. learn more about this, you know, wait a minute, am I really supposed to be in this? Is this a faith I'm supposed to be following? Did you go through that process? Oh, it's been a long journey. Like I said, I mean, I, I was, you know, I was that kid who was, I was at church like five days a week growing up. Yeah. I, mean, I was, you know, deeply in it. I went to Southern Baptist Seminary. So I drank about as deeply as you can drink at that well. And, you know, so this has been a, yeah, for me, I mean, I'm in, in my early 50s. It's been a 30 year, all my adult life, really, a process of trying to disentangle what was about white supremacy and what was about Christianity and how these things were all tangled up together for me and, and my faith. And, and like you said, you know, you're taught that Christianity is about love, right? That it, it's about community. It's about, you know, these more positive things and to realize that at the root of it is about domination and power. And so much of the actual lived history of the religion and, and particularly in this country, it does create quite a bit of dissonance. And, you know, and for me, it really required me to say, all right, I'm going to have to take a step back and try as best I can to just put it all out on the table and see if I can sort it out. And, and in yeah. many ways, this book was the book I needed to write for myself to really try to make my way through that, that process. The other thing that, that PRRI, and folks, this is where we see the marriage of, of mathematics and computer science and religion, that has enabled you to look at actual numbers. Mm -hmm. It does. It does. It. So talk to us about that. G give us an idea of some of the numbers that stand out to you when we look at Christianity today and, and maybe even how prevalent whiteness and an attitude of white supremacy still is yeah. um, in, in Christendom in America. Right. So, you know, the, the book kind of stands on three legs, kind of a three-legged stool. I and mean, one is a kind of a memoir. We've been talking about that, right. my own personal journey in history growing up in this world. Um, another is kind of the history, where I kind of lay out the history. But the third one really is the social science, and that is kind of where people are today. And so the tools that I use are really public opinion surveys from PRI, mm -hmm. kind of very large-scale nationally representative public opinion surveys, where what I really wanted to say, okay, if this was my experience— and this is what the history looks like. How then is that still with us today? Right. And one of the best mm -hmm. ways to do that is to kind of do a good survey, uh, really, of, of and, the, and the surveys are really of all Americans, but with big samples of, of white Christian groups. And, and basically, just to give you a couple of examples of what we found is that, so asked a whole series of questions about racial justice, about the existence of systemic racism uh, in the country, and found this kind of shocking pattern. Um, and so, like I asked about Confederate flags, for example, Confederate monuments, whether these were, for example, merely symbols of Southern pride or whether they were symbols of racism, whether the killing of African-Americans by police, are these simply isolated incidents or are they part of a pattern? Right. At least treat African-Americans. Do, does the legacy of past discrimination against African-Americans in this country have repercussions in the present? And essentially what we found, I, I combined 15 different questions like that into what I call um, the racism index in the book so I could get a composite measure of where groups were. And the groups that I measured were three white Christian groups, white evangelicals, um, predominantly in the South, white mainline Protestants that are more prevalent in the upper Midwest and the Northeast, and then white Catholics, which are kind of more of an immigrant population, more urban, typically also in the Northeast. And then also looked at those over and against white unaffiliated people, that is whites who are not Christian. Because what I really wanted to see is what work is Christianity doing? 
right among white Americans. Um, like, mm. What role does it really play? And it was really striking when I when I did this. What I found is that um, when I crunched all these questions together and I kind of scored them on a scale of one to ten, with ten being holding kind of the most racist attitudes, denying the existence of systemic racism, and zero holding the least racist attitudes and being seeing systemic racism. What I found is that maybe not surprisingly that white evangelicals, again that that group in the South, scored eight out of ten on that scale. But what was, I think, more surprising is that the other two groups, white mainline Protestants and white Catholics, scored 7 out of 10 on that scale. And when I looked at whites who were not Christian, they only scored 4 out of 10 on that scale. So essentially what that means is that what the data tells and the numbers tell us is that if you take your average white American and you add Christianity, it actually moves them up the racism index rather than down. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. That's interesting. So Christianity, would you say then is still serving the role to some extent as a conductor? That's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's consistent with the history. And and again, you know, I, I think for people like me who grew up kind of inside the white Christian church, this country, it, it is a bit shocking. But I think the question shifted for me, I think, as I kind of got more steeped in the history. You know, so the question of like, oh, well, like what I hear from many white audiences when I talk to them is like, how can this be? How can it be that Christianity actually makes white people more racist right in this country? How can that possibly be? And But, you know, when you really understand the history and read it for what it is, I think that question shifts from how can this be to how can this be otherwise, you know, given mm-hmm. given the real history in this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is. That's, that's something. More MIP after this message. But now... I think we would all agree that in earlier periods, racism was more explicit in the church. I mean, I don't know how many churches today are as explicit or are preaching racism and segregation. So, and and you also kind of use the term DNA. Are you meaning to say to us that it is so ingrained in the faith and in the culture around the faith that People don't even necessarily have to make racist statements from the pulpit or, or in or in houses of worship, but that is just there and it still lingers. It's just an understanding. Is, is that is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it's a, a a way of thinking about how worldviews get passed down from generation to generation <laughs> through institutions, <laughs> right? And so they get embodied in theology, they get embodied in hymns, they get embodied in liturgy, they get embodied in stained glass windows, right, of white Jesus. And, pa- and these things are passed down explicitly and implicitly to the next generation. And, and so without active attempts at deconstructing them, I mean, you know, I can remember singing, for example, just like little things, like there was a hymn that we... The the chorus was, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow, yes, whiter than snow. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow, right? And just this images of like whiteness mm-hmm. as purity, being closer to God, images of Jesus or the disciples in stained glass windows that are depicted of light-skinned people look like they're of European descent. These are all silent lessons, right, that are kind of come down pretty powerfully to... Uh, and I've always said like, you know, uh, if you want to test to see how powerful these things are. Try standing up in a in a church business meeting and proposing that we take down the image of the white Jesus in the in the stained glass window and you know and see what resistance comes. I mean it'll be pretty fast and swift. Uh, and all yeah. well, well a lot of us in the black liberation theology movement have already seen that and witnessed that. But then too 
even though I asked about the, the subtlety there and not the yeah. explicitness, but I think we do have to admit that it is still true. I think, with, I think Dr. King said it, that Sunday is still the most segregated day in America. So because there's freedom of religion, I mean, you can't enforce desegregation on Sunday morning. And only in exceptional places will you find a congregation that is 50-50 or, or even yeah. split amongst all the... I mean, man, let's be honest. You've even got exclusively Latinx congregations now. And I'm not saying it's wrong. You've got exclusively Asian congregations now just all over. You know, you can go in one community and see all the different... And in some houses of worship, as we all well know, have different cultures in that house of worship at different times of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, so talk to us about it, because it seems to me that there's something about the faith that, that lends itself to being most practiced and, I guess, enjoyed exclusively amongst your own. And we do it as black people. I mean, we yeah. go to the black, I mean, the black church is a cultural phenomenon. I live in, I live in, in New York. And European tourists come from around the world, as you know, to come and sit in Abyssinian church and to sit in the church because they never you know, they want to see black gospel music on. So what do you think about that? Because that's obviously happening, happening. And does that contribute to what continues to persist in the church's DNA? Yeah. Well, I think there is, again, important to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit on some very recent history. Any white congregations that have been around for any real time, certainly through the 1950s and 1960s, had to wrestle with the question of, are we going to be a a congregation open to anyone who attends, or are we going to be a whites-only church? And and my own church uh, growing up had a a policy of of being a whites-only church. My my grandfather, you know, I found out I was a deacon in in a church, and one of his roles in the early 1960s was to be posted outside the doors of the church and make sure that no one who wasn't white entered the sanctuary. I mean, that was a, that was a an official role for a, for a deacon, right? It wasn't like a wink, wink, nod, nod. I mean, this was a, a discussed, agreed upon role, right, for a deacon in the church to play. And Megar Evers, the last thing he did, the last campaign he was involved in was an integration of churches campaign in Jackson, Mississippi yeah. um, uh, before he was killed. I mean, the, the, the thing he, he did like 24 hours before he was killed was work on desegregating uh, churches in Jackson, Mississippi, who were very intent on holding themselves to be whites only spaces. So I, I think with that that legacy is different, I think, right, uh, from the white side of the equation than it is from every every other side, because there was a kind of intentionality of holding on to power and a way that if churches were segregated, so could our public institutions, our schools, our parks, swimming pools, like all the kind of civic resources could also be segregated. Today, it, it, you're right, the last numbers I've seen, it, it's about 85% of American churches are still essentially monoracial churches. Believe it or not, that's actually better than it was 20 years ago, but it's still mm-hmm. about 85%. And that's even if we set the bar at only 20, 20% of the congregation being not the majority racial or ethnic group. So if you set the bar fairly low, only about 85% of the churches today you know, meet that bar. And being a multicultural church is still a really rare yeah. multiracial church, a really rare entity in the country. And you know, I think it's a, it's a mixed thing. I think on the one hand, you know, we clearly have seen places that are uh, like the African-American church played and and that is a safe space, right? Um, was a hugely important role for the African American community in the country. I think, and, you know, the Latinx churches may be functioning in a similar way for people who aren't kind of majority part of kind of the majority of the yeah. country or recent immigrants in finding community. But it, it's one of those things where I think there's those positive things, but I think the real 
challenge is that it means that, particularly for white Americans, it's just one more place where they don't encounter anyone who doesn't look like them, right? Um, and I think that's that's a real that is like one of the biggest barriers I think for for white Christians is they just aren't in relationships with many right. people who don't look like them. More MIP after this message. So might that be part of the solution? Do we need a movement today to to integrate Sunday morning? I'd love to know your take on that question. Uh, you know, too. I mean, I, but I've seen some you know different models. Like on the one hand, uh, it's very rare. I think that churches have tried to merge. I've only think even read yeah. like a couple of examples of the white and black church trying to actually merge into one church. What I'm seeing more of is kind of deliberate and even like covenantal partnerships, where two communities yeah. are not intending to merge, but they are trying to build right. bridges, build relationships, and build some partnerships going for really build community going going forward. I think. That that is probably more of what we're going to see. I mean, we'll certainly see some, you know, some multi-racial churches emerging. But I, given the history, um, I here I think the more more of what we're going to see are these partnerships kind of taking forward. You know, the good ones I think go beyond the Thanksgiving pulpit swap or whatever. But you know, right, 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 really yeah. are trying to kind of build community. But I'd, I'd love to know your take on that question. Well, I, I think what I've seen, when we, and, and also I've seen exactly what you described, and that's been a good thing when you have churches working together around different events, different times of the year. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely necessary, especially in local communities, because ultimately, you know, the ideal church scenario is is local. I mean, it's it's there to serve the local community. So if there's a, 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 a mainline black church or a mainline white church, and like I said, there are other churches out here. I mean, I don't see why. You know, other code, the, the Korean church, the, the Haitian church, the Latinx church, the Dominican Republic, I mean, the Dominican church, find ways to serve a local community coming together and really put the, the brotherhood and sisterhood we preach in Christianity together. Just just test that. We really, we really mean this. Because if we do, I mean, I, I think it's always lawyers have to go take CLE courses every year, continuing legal education. I, I think that in Christianity, we need to do something like that through through a project, through the process. Robert, your church and my church are going to get together. And we're going to get together with the Haitian church over here and do something in this community. Now, let's be real. You know, we're talking about white supremacy, but some churches still have a problem going even outside of their four walls. So that might be the first obstacle. You know, we talk about that all the time. There are churches that are literally carrying out a prophetic gospel, even though they're white. They're out in the larger community, visible, feeding the homeless, clothing. Other churches don't do none of that. So some t that, that's, an, that's a whole other obstacle, aside from the history of white supremacy, that you're just going to be insular. You know, you're Joel Osteen, people are dying in floods, but they can't come stay here. You know, I'm not saying that to, to just single him out and say he's a bad person, but that's just an objective fact. That's what happened. He got called out for not opening that big, huge space. And I don't, I, I don't, I mean, part of that I'm sure had to do with white supremacy because there was a lot of black people there, but there were a lot of white people too. I mean, just in, in, and there's black people sitting in his congregation. So you can't open the doors of the church. So I would answer your question in that way. And I'm not pastoring right now, but, uh, and I'm like you, kind of a halfway academic, like I said, if they let me get a PhD, but maybe that's the reason why they won't let me get one. But, uh, <laughs> but that would be what I would do, Robert is to develop relationships. Sometimes the best way to develop relationships is on is by working on things together. Yeah. You know, it's it's fine to have dialogue and meetings and 
panels. But sometimes the best relationships are built, and as one who has been involved in the civil rights movement all my life, comes from working on something. To, let's do a project. Let's focus on this segment of our community and all of us from these diverse denominations and, and backgrounds. Because then you got the denominational issue. Funny thing about church, it can break down on race and culture and denomination. Well, I'm Catholic, you're Protestant, that type of thing. But that's what I would think would be would be healthy. Because people don't learn and they don't get better unless they see other people and realize, wow, this is a this is a human being too. This is this is this is someone like me. And honestly, I would have thought that would have been and it may still not be too late. I mean, we're this is this is where the church really should be in full effect in its role, Robert. We're in the middle of a pandemic that's killing everybody. Mm. And I found out and I've, this audience has heard me tell this story. You haven't, so I told you, you know, the audience may be tired of it. I'm living in New York in the epicenter. And we're dealing with this and Trump's and all, what's going on? Man, Robert, one day I'm watching New York television news and the refrigeration trucks are coming into the city for the body. Mm -hmm. Robert, the, the trucks went from the left side of my TV screen to the right and I almost had a nervous breakdown. And it hit me then. I wasn't any longer dealing with science or politics around this vaccine, I mean, around COVID. I said, okay, this is a God thing. We're going to have to deal with this that way. And then we started a daily morning prayer call called the Prayademic to deal with it. And so if there was ever a time, because my guests on this show from CDC and elsewhere, they say, Mark, remark, uh, let's be clear. This is the new reality for humanity. These types of diseases, new ones, pervasive ones. I think some folks think this is going to be over in a couple of months. And we, we thought that a few months ago, and look, look what's happened. So what's the church? Really, at the end of the day, when these existential things happen that are inexplicable, in that kind of way, you know, the way the church earns its bread, <laughs> so, so to mm. speak, or, or lives up to its work. So if we can't come together around that, because it's killing black folk, white folk, and everybody, then really, what are, what are we preaching about now? Look, what else is there to preach about when folk are dying, falling dead from a disease? I can't think of anything else you'd you be preaching about. And even, that's even if you put social justice aside. Okay, some churches may not be ready for that, but you're dying from a disease. I'm dying from a disease. Robert's church is dying from a disease. Let's figure out ways we can all come together. Maybe even something as simple as all these different cultural uh, faith communities coming together to provide free vaccinations or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think there's this is hard not to develop relationships from that and develop understanding, but there has to be the will to do it from what you're saying. You know, there's still obviously, and this is unfortunate where the church is influenced by politics. I mean, you gonna follow behind somebody who goes up, holds the Bible upside down. <laughs> Prophetic. I don't know what it was. He was holding, literally holding the Bible upside down. I mean, no, that's right. That's the picture of age. So what are you all doing? What, what, what are you doing even? That was a, a almost to me a sign from God, you know, the false prophet. So and that's, that's the long answer to your question. Um, yeah. I, I think that's what we have to think about. Folks, well, first of all, let, before we go, let, let me ask this. What has been, and you got the book award, that's great, but I'm sure there have been people on the other side who, well, first of all, have you found people who read your book who've been transformed, who've looked inward? like you have done, and say, wait a minute, what have I been participating in all my life? Yeah, no, it's it's been one of the more gratifying things. Like I said, you know, this okay. is literally the book that I wrote to get clarity for myself. 
take the deep dive and, and, and realizing I have the tools to do it, right? I'm theologically trained. I got a PhD yeah. in religion, like yeah. I've got yeah. the tools to do it. And a lot of people don't. So it was kind of the book I felt like I needed to write. It has been really um, gratifying to, you know, to get like, I'm thinking I got an email from, you know, a woman in her seventies uh, uh, who is in a small Midwestern town. And she said, she and like three or four of her friends had done a like reading the book and that they were every weekend out with their Black Lives Matter signs in front of their church uh, in this little small town with mm-hmm. like almost all white, you know, town mm-hmm. uh, in the Midwest, but feeling like they needed to kind of take a witness and, and to do it like against the backdrop of their church, right? To kind of say, no, 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 we're going to give a different message than the one our church has been given, either silence or complicity, you know, with white supremacy. You know, the other uh, quick story I'll tell is of, of some kind of full circle things. There's a, a church in Tulsa, Boston Avenue Methodist Church, that in 1921 was the, the church that a Methodist bishop traveled up from Dallas to give the Sunday sermon right after the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921. Blamed it on the African American population in Tulsa. Mm. Complete. It was a just top to bottom white supremacist, you know, message. Really, just heartbreaking. Difficult to read. The sermon's all out there. You can read it. And that same church in 2021 held a hundred days of repentance for white Christians in Tulsa. And they preached there. I got invited to preach, you know, as part of this whole thing. And we're one of the leaders of the memorials commemoration. Of, of really taking responsibility uh, for what happened in Tulsa 100 years ago. So I, I think there are these moments of transformation that I've been able to see that I think are real. I mean, I call them movements of the spirit, you know, that, that I yeah. really see are, are different. Now, there's still a lot of work to do, as you know, like a lot of backlash. But but I actually think the backlash we're seeing is because the prevailing winds are, I think, the, the winds that we're seeing behind the Black Lives Matter movement, these winds of accountability and reckoning around this really fraught history of, of race and white supremacy, of racism and white supremacy in the country. And I, I actually take some heart in, you know, the fact that those winds are strong enough to cause some backlash, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. you, get a, you only get a backlash when the powers that be are worried that the walls are coming down. Right, yeah. that they're crumbling, yeah. um, and and I, I I think that's that's where we at. I'm I'm taking some some hope in that. Yeah, Amen. Well, we we're thankful for what you've done. Right, too long. The legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. We all ought to challenge ourselves uh, to read that and struggle with it. And I think many of us, no matter where we come from, can be transformed by this book. You never stop this. You never stop learning. You never stop this quest that you're on. If you're truly a part of of the faith. Uh, it's not something that is finite. It really is not supposed to be because the faith says eternal life. It's infinite. So why would our thinking <laughs> be finite? If we're infinite, why would our thinking be finite? So I'm just thinking about this too, man. I'm, I'm messing with you because you, you, you have the math and the religion. So would you? Would, are, so are you like a, a, would we call you a, a sort of a, a, a nerdy theologian? Are you a nerd? Sure. Total nerd. Data nerd. Religion nerd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But man, that's the thing to be now. When I was coming along, the last thing you wanted to be was a nerd. You didn't get right. nobody right. talked to you. You couldn't get the girlfriends. Now, you know, when I had Neil deGrasse Tyson on the show, all the women that we love him. I said, wait a minute, he's a nerd. But I mean, he's you know, it's, that's the new sexy. So, right. uh, so, so that's great. Well, man, listen, congratulations, uh, folks. Do check out the book. Congratulations on the National Book Award. Quite too long. The legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. And let's uh, you and I collaborate some more sometime, okay? Amen. Yeah, happy to stay in touch. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. Robert P. Jones. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain.
Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.